according to Bureau of Justice Statistics, nearly two-thirds of those admitted to prison for the first time will have been on probation, and a third will have served a sentence to a local jail or juvenile facility. Men are over eight times more likely than women to be incarcerated in prison at least once during their life. This is Kristen Shook with Reentry Reframed, a Mere Inc.-sponsored podcast. Today, I have a guest whose name is John Cantrell. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited for this conversation. This is going to be the first time that we've actually met and spoke, so this will be a wonderful ice-breaking time. (laughs) I'd like to get started by just asking, where are you from? Uh, Originally from Wichita, Kansas. Born there. My family moved to Pomona Lake just south of Topeka on 75 Highway when I was around three years old. Wichita, Kansas, we moved up in 92, I believe. I was two or three years old. My father had gotten a job at Wolf Creek Nuclear Operating Corporation, and he had transferred from Kansas Gas and Electric, I believe. So we moved up when they started building the nuclear power plant, and he started working there. What is your family background like? I came from an incredible family. My mother and father have been married for... 34 years now. I have two sisters. Both are very, very good at what they do. They're both extremely successful in life. My sister's a biologist for Cargill, and my other sister is a very, very successful real estate agent. Awesome. Both of my sisters are fantastic. They were both really good at sports. One was really, really exceptional at sports, and the other was exceptional at academics. I was kind of a good mix of both of them. Were they older or younger? Both older. I'm the youngest. Oh, fun. Yep. I had great grandparents that just doted on me. I have a really great family. So what did your mom do? Well, my mom started off, she was a stay-at-home mom until we were old enough to go to school. And I was the last one to go to school. So when I went to school, she started going to school. And she also started continuing her education once we went to school. She became our computer teacher in elementary school. And then she was the volleyball and basketball and track coach for junior high and high school. Wow. Right. Nice. Yep. Dad was accounting and finance. He was a supervisor manager for Wolf Creek. Awesome. In their accounting department. And how was your childhood like growing up? I'd say as Midwest American as it gets, you know, we had, I had a dirt bike and we, we lived on the lake. So we had a boat and we got to go do all the fun stuff. And, you know, we went on trips all the time with dad for work. And, you know, I, I grew up the American dream, man, you know, upper middle class, you know, I never needed anything, never wanted for anything. I always had lots of love and plenty of support from my family and and from friends. Did you have any traumatic experiences while you were growing up? Nothing exceptional that really stands out. You know, losing losing grandparents, you know, just the norm. But as far as uh as far as like losing a sibling or losing a parent or you know something like that, nothing really comes to mind. And were any of your parents or sisters did they use any substances? Yes. So addiction runs on both sides of my family. Alcohol on both. My mom never really, she never struggled with alcohol, but I'm sure that my dad struggled with alcohol and substances at one point in time in his life. But it was before me. It wasn't. My parents drank responsibly and socially when we were kids and when we were growing up. So how was it like going through school? Well, it was difficult at the beginning. I have severe attention deficit disorder. It went undiagnosed for many years. I can't remember how old I was when I started taking attention deficit disorder drugs, but I was young. Do you think it helped you? It helped tremendously. So when I started, I went from from needing a significant amount of help in school to excelling at everything that I did in school. So I began elementary school at Linden, and I did middle school there as well. 
And I, I really struggled in school then. And a lot of that was just trying to find the correct medication and the correct dosage for both depression and for attention deficit. So I transferred to Burlington for high school and there was a big shift and I, I don't have anything bad to say about Lyndon, but um, sometimes a new start can really help people, you know, and I knew that their sports programs were really good and I was an athlete. So I transferred there and it seemed like the kids at my new school put a lot more emphasis on the popular kids were the kids with good grades, if that makes sense. And like, that's a big shift. You know, when you go from, from avoiding school to be popular to getting good grades and being involved and being involved with all the different leadership programs and everything else. It's a big dynamic shift in how you look at success and how you look at failure, right? So once I started getting involved in high school, like everything became really easy. My medication got straightened out. Everything kind of started to become a lot simpler in life. You know, of course I'm an athlete, but I, I didn't have to work so hard at, at learning either. So I was in advanced placement classes. I ended up graduating with 70 hours of college credits. Wow. Right. But not, not all high schools in Kansas have, have the ability to do that. And at the time, Burlington was one of the best schools in Kansas, which out of my bias, I still think it probably is. But, you know, it helps. So you got to think about like socioeconomic status for places. And when you have a small town of 3,000, 4,000 people and you have a nuclear power plant that majority of the people that live in the town work at, it raises their, you know, the standard of living is really high. They were able to afford really good teachers and taxes were higher and you know, the socioeconomic status of the people that lived in the town was a lot better, if that makes sense. Yeah. And just curious, because a lot of children do have ADHD and everything like that, as an adult, how do you think it played out with your life being able to get on medication and get the correct type of medication while you were younger? Well, that's kind of a double-edged sword, to be honest with you, Kristen. So I think my addiction started when I was young. My major addictions were methamphetamine, cocaine, opiates and alcohol, right? I started abusing my medications when I was young. I mean, in high school, but when I was young. And if I would not have had that ability or if I wouldn't have had it so easily accessible, and if I couldn't just walk into the doctor's office and say, hey, I need more and I need a higher milligram and I need something that's faster release, probably would have made it a lot more difficult for me to, to do what I was doing, if that makes sense. For sure. It's interesting to be able to know that, especially in today's society where, you know, parents struggle with allowing their kids to begin taking medications. But then also, you know, kids do actually possibly need some kind of medications or rather learning how to be more mindful and more focused in, in other avenues. Right. And I, it's a coin toss because it really did help me. I don't believe that I would have been college educated or I would have made it to college or been accepted to college and done well in college if it wouldn't have been for that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I don't, I can't say that because I can remember a time in my life when I said I cannot function without my medication. And now I'm a extremely successful business person in the community and I do everything without it. So I'm not telling you that it wouldn't make my life easier if I had it now, but um, I also can't tell you that if I wouldn't have worked harder and put more time into it or been taught differently or directed differently, that it wouldn't have had the same outcome. And what kind of things do you use now to help yourself be focused on what you're doing? One of the biggest side effects of ADHD is shotgun fire thinking, right? It's spread out all over the place. You know, you're, you're thinking about a million different things at once. So what I have found is that I can do that successfully if I build structure around myself. So I'm not super organized, right? So I became organized. I'm not good with schedules. So I, I developed a schedule and I, I stick to it. I found out in 
when I was incarcerated that I could, I could help myself by building structure and routine around what I do. So if I wanted to be, if I want to work out and I want to lose weight, right, I want to exercise and I want to start an exercise regimen, what I'll do is I'll create surroundings that make that really easy for me to do. If I want to eat healthier, I won't buy bad food. I'll make sure that I get healthy food. I'll make sure that I meal prep. That way it's easy for me to just grab something healthy out of the fridge. Anything that I can do to, to make doing the right thing easier. So, dang, we kind of went down a rabbit hole, but I was interested. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my bad. Uh, you said that you played sports. What sports did you play while you were going through school? Uh, basketball was my favorite sport, but I also did wrestling when I was a kid. I wasn't a huge fan. And then uh, football was my best sport. I take that back. Volleyball was actually my best sport, but they didn't have men's volleyball in high school. But uh, my mom was an excellent volleyball coach, and both of my sisters were phenomenal volleyball players. Uh, my sister Casey has a state championship. My mom has several. My mom was an incredible athlete. I get the majority of my athleticism from my mom, but my my dad's a big, strong guy, and he's athletic too. But my mom is a she's a tough cookie. She's a superwoman. Awesome. Yeah. You said you, you did end up going to college. What did you go to college for? I started at Wichita State. Uh, I transferred there with my fiance in fall semester of 2009. I started, I double majored in accounting and finance there. So I had gotten hurt my senior year of high school and my plan was to play college football. Well, I got hurt and I, there was no way I was going to be able to play. So I ended up gaining a tremendous amount of weight and drinking became my new sport of choice and I was excellent at it. So I took that with me from high school to college and within my first year at Wichita State, I failed out because of alcohol. Were you still using substances? Yes. So I had, in high school, I had, I basically would do whatever I could get. But I mean, I had some of the best drugs prescribed to me. Generally speaking, my drugs branched off alcohol. So I never wanted the party to stop, right? So like when everybody else would be like tired and ready to go to bed and drunk and whatever else, I would just take a couple of my pills and keep on partying deep into the night. So yeah, I carried that with me to college and it, I wouldn't study for the entire semester. I'd get to the very end and then I'd cram and try to pass all my classes with what I had left and get all my papers written and everything else. And I was successful with that in high school for a long time. And like when you start taking like really difficult college classes, like that's, it's just not as easy. I think I failed real estate, but I passed calculus. Don't ask me how. Um, but I ended up having to transfer out. I transferred to Emporia State University for my sophomore year and started there. But I had graduated with enough college credits to where it basically didn't mean anything that I lost that year. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Fast forward, I ended up graduating from college early because I had so many credits. So when you went to Emporia, were you still on the same cycle of using alcohol and substances or? Yeah, but it was, it was different. So I... Uh, I went into accounting and finance because that's what my dad did. And I always wanted my dad's approval. So I grew up in an atheist family. We never went to church. We never talked about God. We never had God in our lives. Like God was a crutch for weak people that couldn't take care of themselves or figure things out for themselves. You know, it was, it was for weak-minded people. So I, I grew up thinking that. And I was going to be a teacher and teach that. So my dad was basically my God. Like I, I, wanted, I wanted his approval. I wanted him to... You know, I, I wanted that. And like, I had never been as smart as my other sister and I'd never been as, you know, athletic as my other sister. We always vied, like dad was like the, the big cheese. So we always vied for dad's attention and dad's love, which he, 
We got tons of it, but you know, that's who I emulated. That's who I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be my dad. So in high school, it wasn't, the coursework wasn't as difficult, of course, even though I was in advanced placement. But when I got to college, like you can't fake that. You can't fake it till you make it. Like, especially with managerial accounting and, you know, it's, you're, you're just not either you want to do it and it's something you want to do and you're going to be good at it, or you need to, you need to find a new path. Really what had changed my academic career was my freshman year at Burlington, there was a gal named Sally Donahue and she was the world cultures teacher. And she also taught government and American history and all the other history classes. But I fell in love with her and I fell in love with how she taught. And I went from getting poor grades to loving her class and having her teach me how to learn correctly. And it changed everything. Like I knew that I wanted to be in history. I knew that I wanted to learn law. I knew that I wanted to be on that side of things. That's what I wanted to focus my interest on because that's what interested me. That's what drew me in. You know, I was a 14-year-old Indiana Jones. So is that what you did? Yeah. So when I transferred to Emporia State, I changed majors and I double majored in history and political science. Of course, you know, I'm doing what I love and I love reading the books and everything comes second nature to me. And all of a sudden school's interesting and I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm enjoying what I'm learning about. I'm seeing how everything is building upon everything else. And you look at history and you look at how it repeats itself and how we never learn from our previous lessons. I was just fascinated with it. You know, I thought that if I could understand where we came from, I could understand who I was better. And really that's what I was searching for. I wanted to know who I was and I wanted to know what I was about and what I was made of. And yeah, interesting. Around when did you end up actually graduating? So I graduated a semester early and I graduated in 2012. I moved to Lawrence. I did my student teaching at Lowther Intermediary School with the plan on being a teacher. And I got done with six months of that and I did not want to be a teacher anymore. (laughs) So I ended up taking a job in uh, Lawrence at a loan cashing place. They do all different kinds of loans there, but it was, it was a job. I needed something to do. So I started working there. Uh, That's, that's when everything really started to go downhill. So I was still living with my parents while I was at Emporia State. I had moved home. I'd moved out of Wichita and moved in with them. When I moved to Lawrence, I moved. I was still kind of living at home, but I was living with a friend up there most of the time just to save gas from driving back and forth. But I had started playing pool while I was at Emporia State because my girlfriend at the time, was a, she was on the dance team. So I would get done with classes at 10 o'clock in the morning and she would, we'd have to be there until five, six, seven o'clock at night for her to do practice or games or whatever else she was there for. So I would go play pool for six, seven, eight hours a day. And I was really, really, really good at pool. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. I'm living in Lawrence. I make more money hustling pool than I do at work. And I find that when everybody else is starting to get really drunk, I can take some of my medicine and I sober up really quickly and I'm wide awake again. So I started, well, and you know, with party drugs and everything else, like, you know, it starts with cocaine and it's like, okay, this is great. I love how it feels. I love what's happening. You know, I'm wide awake again. The party's still going and I'm firing balls and like just having a good time. No Coke, right? Can't find Coke. Can't find anything. So it's, okay, well, let's try speed. And I'd used methamphetamine before. You know, it's funny, growing up in small town Kansas, like it's everywhere, you know, and I didn't see it at first, but the further I got away from home and from that structure and from that, you know, who my parents were and the kind of life we had and everything else, like I realized how like really sheltered I was in life. So, uh, yeah, I, I took methamphetamine and it was readily available and it was cheap and it had the perfect effect on me. 
I was able to super focus on whatever I was doing and just grind things out. And as far as, as far as playing pool or anything else, I was lights out. Like I was able to super focus on what I was doing and you could see everything. I could see my out. I could see the, see the way off the board. I just, I really enjoyed it. It seemed to work well with my personality and I was able to hide that because I, I'd used and go to work. I used and would go around people and my family and everybody else and I could hide it. Well, at first I could hide it, but after it really started taking over my life, like I wasn't able to hide it anymore. How long was it until it started taking over your life? For me to notice about six months, um, for everybody else to notice about a year. But I'm sure they noticed, you know, I wasn't me. What were some of the ways that you could tell that it was kind of taking over and that you needed it a little more than just what you were using it for at the beginning? Well, at first I was just a weekend warrior. You know, I would cop dope on Friday and then party all the way through Friday night, all the way through Saturday. And then Sunday, like I would just sleep all day. And then Monday I'd get up and go to work. Well, it got to the point where I couldn't get up and go to work Monday sober. Like I, I had to use to be able to function. And that's when everything went downhill. And I was also making more, like I said, I was making more money gambling than I was at work. And drugs, gambling, bars, everything kind of feeds into, one feeds into the other. Yeah, I, uh, I went off the rails quick. And I hid it from all the people that I loved and all the people that were my, my safety net. You know, I ended up getting into a gambling debt and that's what kind of started it. And that's how I got into distribution. So I got into a gambling debt. I had to make the money quickly and I had to pay it back quickly. I knew of a way to do that. And that was through selling drugs. But at any point in time, Kristen, I could have called my dad and said, Hey, I need you to write me a check. And it would have been done, but I didn't want to. It's like I wanted to experience that side of life. I wanted, I wanted to live that. You know, what the music I liked glorified and what the movies I watched and I liked glorified. Like I wanted to do that. I wanted to live that life. You know, I thought that's what I, I thought that's what I really wanted, you know, because it's, it's so glamorized in the music that you listen to. It's so glamorized in the movies that you watch, you know, and it looks like some huge party. And I'll tell you what, I, I walked that line as far and as deep as it goes and it's nothing but a pit. It's nothing but a pit. How long did you live that life? Between graduating college and federal prison was about 18 months. And what ended up getting you caught up with the law? I'd gotten cold bite on and then nothing ever came of it. So I had no idea. Which means? I got stung. It was a sting operation. Nothing ever came of it. And nobody, I never got arrested. So I decided I was going to leave and get sober, right? And I'd gone to rehab several times, but like I was done. I was flat done. So I moved to Florida. And my parents had sent me to expensive rehabs, but this was it. Like I was done. And I went down to Florida to St. Pete beach and you know, my soul was just crushed. You know, everybody that I thought I knew and trusted and loved, like everybody had betrayed me. And like, when you're in that, you don't have any friends, nobody, everybody's just trying to get their next fix or their next dime or, you know, nobody cares about anybody else. Well, and you, you know, you probably do, but like your addiction rules your life so much that you can't like, I care about you and I love you, but I don't have the ability to not do what I have to do to, to help you, you know? So I was introduced to God through Alcoholics Anonymous. Man, my parents spent tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars on me getting sober in rehabs, and I got sober in AA for a dollar. I want to go back. I want to dig deeper just a little bit into, was the sting operation, was that the very first time that you were ever in trouble with minus, the law? Minus the DUI, yeah. Okay. Well, so I got, I got one of them while I was in Wichita. A DUI? A DUI. 
and that I got diverted. And then there's a second one where I think I got roofied while I was playing pool in Lawrence. And like these guys tried to rob me when I was leaving and I got in my car and I left and I ended up driving all the way down Iowa on a rim, throwing sparks out the side. And like I pulled over into a car lot on my way out of town, like, and I was completely blacked out. I ended up getting arrested for DUI. They took me in and they tested me and then nothing ever came of it. Like nothing ever happened. Like it just went away. It was, it was really strange, but yeah, besides for that, no, I'd never been to jail for anything. And we explained the situation with the sting operation and everything. Like what, what was your life looking like? So I thought I was going to be Scarface and I was going to, you know, so I'd, I'd found out after I'd paid off my debt that like I was good at, I've always been a salesman. Always. I can, I can sell anything. If I believe in it and I like it and it's something that I enjoy and it's something that I believe in, like I can sell it to anybody. Now I, I can't sell you a lemon and I can't sell you junk. But like, if I like it and I think it's quality and I think it's good stuff, if Toyota's my favorite car and you're, you're at my dealership and you want me to sell you a Toyota, there's not a chance you're going to walk away from me without buying one. So I had made the conscious decision at some point in time that that was going to be my life. Like I was going to sell drugs and be a drug user. And, um, fast forward a little bit, I had gotten to a point where I was able to get fairly large amounts of drugs and I trusted a friend and he walked me into a room with cops and I sold the cops and I left and he tried to set it up again and I had been done. I wasn't going to go back. I was ready to get sober. I didn't want to do this anymore. And I'd been through a string of just really piss poor relationships and I was tired. I was tired of running around all the time. I was tired of, you know, never sleeping. I wanted my family back. I wanted to be me again and I wanted to start life because I knew that what I was doing was wrong. It didn't seem like I was hurting anybody at the time, but like now that I think back about it, like I can, I can for sure see how everybody that I encountered and everybody that I was around and everybody that loved me and everybody that cared about me was getting hurt by me, even if I wasn't standing next to them or stealing from them or whatever. How old were you? Uh, I would have been 22. At what point did you end up getting convicted? Okay, so we're going to go back to Florida. Okay. So I'd gotten sober and I, AA had introduced me to God and that was kind of the beginning of my spiritual journey and everything was great and everything was working perfectly down there. And I'd met this sponsor and he was a fantastic guy and he was a big business guy down there and he had car lots and he had a marina and he sold boats and he was in a property management, fantastic guy. And I was going to move down there. So I came home to get my stuff. And when I got back, the U.S. Marshals were waiting for me. And I had no idea. Like literally at your house? Uh, at the airport. Wow. Right. They were not messing around. How did they know? Uh, that's a good question. They were pinging your phone? I have no idea. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get into how they know what they know. <laughs> I stay out of all that. Okay. I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> they have their ways, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Wow. What happened then? So I got picked up. I was taken to CCA, the holding facility in Leavenworth. I started there. My parents came and bonded me out. You know, I'm a college graduate. My parents have money. You know, they got me a really expensive lawyer and I went home. So I was out on pretrial release. I think I was sober for about two weeks before I decided that my life was over. And uh, it didn't matter whether I used it or didn't anyways. So um, I started using again. I used, I don't remember how long I was out before I turned myself in, but um, I think I'd failed a UA and I had one more shot and... Joel, Joel was my guy. Joel was like, Hey, this isn't working. I'm like, man, listen, I don't know. I don't know how I got it dirty. And I was, you know, I was a drug addict. If my mouth was open, I was lying. He gave me one more shot and I took that shot and I was like, okay, I'm going to get really, really high now. 
So I had gone to the bar with a girlfriend of mine and I started drinking and I'd use, we'd use a little bit. It was in Pomona. The bar was called the 700 club. I don't think it exists anymore. I came out that night and you know, I was just depressed and I didn't really want to go to prison and I was not in a good place and I hated my life and I hated who I was. So, uh, on my drive home, I, um, I just was going really fast and I let go of the steering wheel and my car went off the road and rolled about five or six times. And, uh, I didn't have my seatbelt on and my windows were rolled down and, uh, I got up and walked away. I mean, I can, I can remember like, so my car was upside down and I'm like on the hood of the car and I'm like trying to find a full, like a whole cigarette because like, I just want a cigarette and I'm like searching around and all there is, is like shredded tobacco all over the floor, like all over the car. (laughs) I had hit so hard that the full pack of cigarettes I had on my lap exploded. And everything that was in the car went out the windows. My AA book that was in the back seat, everything that was in the car went out the windows except for me. I got up and I started walking down the road. My girlfriend had left at the same time as me, but she was way back because I was driving really, really fast. She pulled up beside me and she's like, oh my goodness, was that your car back there? Yeah, that was my car. I got in the car with her and she took me home. So when I got home, I was just torn apart, you know, and I had to go in and tell my parents that I just wrecked my car and that I was drunk and I was high again. And, you know, I just, I just wanted to die. I went into my room and I was just sobbing and like my soul was just breaking. And, uh, I can remember thinking like, man, if there's something out there, I don't know what's out there. I know, I know that there's something out there greater than me, like bigger than I am bigger than humans. Right. I don't know what it is. and I don't have a relationship with it, but like, I cannot quit. Like I had got, it was at the point in my drug use. So it happened before I'd quit, like where I'd gotten to where I would not want to use, but I, I would. And like, I'd be sitting there like sobbing, like, I don't want to get high, but I would get high. And I was back to that again. And I, I was like, there's nothing that can relieve me of, of what I, what I have become. This is it. This is how I'm going to die. But, uh, there's no way I walk out of that crash. Like I did. There's no way. I just got down on my hands and knees and I cried out to the universe, like whatever, whatever is out there please save me from myself. And, uh, I felt this warm blanket get laid over my shoulders and like, I didn't audibly hear it, but like, I heard it. I heard it. I heard, I heard this voice say, it's going to be okay. And I just started weeping. I mean, everything. I just, I just wept. And that was the first time since I was a kid that I've truly felt like I was okay. Like everything was going to be okay. And a week after that, I turned myself in. I had this incredible spiritual experience and I met God, you know, I met him. I cried out and I felt that and I heard it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. I knew that I just encountered Jesus Christ for the first time. He'd been waiting. He'd been waiting for that. I finally saw it. I finally felt it. Like I finally got it. You know, that's, I'd been waiting for that my entire life. I wasn't a true atheist. I was an agnostic. Like I wanted to believe, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. I want to believe, but I can't believe it until I see it. I can't believe it until I see it. Well, that's not how faith works. But man, once I felt it, that was it. So uh, I turned myself in and I was like, I'm not doing any good out here. I'm going to turn myself in. I'm going to start doing my time because no matter what happens or what occurs or how much time I get or anything else, like I am not doing anybody any good out here. So I turned myself in and God immediately put people in my life that, that I needed. You know, one of the first people I met and his, <laughs> he actually just got out and he's doing great. His name's Oren Woodfin. He was in on a bank robbery deal where he had gotten high on benzos and robbed a bank. And like, he's a devout Christian, but like every time he starts drinking and every time he starts doing anything else, he goes off the deep end. 
just like me, just like all the other addicts out there. So I wanted to learn the Bible and I wanted to understand it. And I tried so many times in my life to understand this book and these words and what they meant. And it was all just gibberish to me. Now, all of a sudden, the words are jumping off the pages at me. And I'm, I'm being graced with discernment, like as I'm reading, and I've got this guy here that has the Bible written on his heart. Like I could ask him a question about anything, anything moral or anything social or or any question that we have. And Oren would know right in the book where it was at and he could take me there and he could show it to me. So I started reading that book and I made it my goal to get through that book. And I decided, you know, when I turned myself in, I decided I was like, listen, I've really, really stepped in some, some deep stuff. I'm going to have to work really hard if I want to come back, right? And I'm going to really have to change. But the difference was, was I wasn't looking at success in life as things or money or girls or any of this other stuff. Success became a relationship with God. So I, um, I did easy time. I ended up getting sentenced. I got 60. I was, it was a 60 month sentence in which I did three and a half years on. So that was the first time in my life I was ever free was behind bars. The marshals and the police, they didn't arrest me. They saved me. They saved me from me. Yeah. I was free because I had God and that was all I needed. And I learned while I was there because bad things have, bad things had happened. Like I'd lost some close friends when I was in high school and really close friends. And I'd lost two of my cousins. They were sisters and they were young and they were just going to college and they got into a car accident on their way back from a concert. It was horrible. But, uh, every time I lost somebody, like that was always my excuse to drink or use, you know? And when I started going to rehab before I went in, that would always be my excuse to go back out. Like I would always find a reason. Like I would just wait until something, but like something would happen and that would be my excuse to use again. I found out when I was down, like if I've got God, I don't need anything else. Like if I make that my cornerstone and I make Jesus my foundation and my cornerstone in life, I'm going to lose people. Everybody that we love, everything that we have, it's all going to, we're going to lose everything. We are mortal beings and I don't care how big your house is or how much money you have in the bank or anything else. Like you are going to die. The people you love are going to die. Like that is going to happen. And I don't care what you have or how much of it you have. You are not going to be able to stop that. And once I realized that and I realized that I was, because when you're in prison, like you don't have anything right now. I was fortunate. Like my parents put money on my books and I did well. I, I wasn't selling drugs or anything, but I hustled while I was in there. You know, I had stamps and I, you know, did, I gambled and had like gambling tables and played blackjack and, you know, had poker tables. And I had a store so that if people needed stuff and they couldn't get it on their commissary day, they could come get it from me. But, um, like I didn't need anything though. I learned that I could do without, and I could be happy with nothing as long as I had Christ. When I first got there, I gained a bunch of weight and then, uh, I started exercising and I found out how exercise how that curbed. Also this, you don't get amphetamines in prison if you have ADHD, right? So this was the first time in my life I hadn't been prescribed this. I found out that through exercise, like my depression was so much better and my anxiety was better. And through exercise and through strengthening my body and strengthening my mind and strengthening my my discipline, by disciplining myself, like I could achieve a lot of the same results that drugs had given me before through diet and exercise, which is what I do now. I'd gotten big at first and then, um, Cause all I did was read that book and then I got to the part where I started talking about fasting and then that changed, <laughs> but, um, God put the right people in, in place. And, you know, I decided while I was in, like, you can either level up while you're there and get really, really good at being bad, or you can, you can decide to change and decide to become who you want to be and start working towards that. And 
what prison does is it gives you a really valuable portion of time where you don't have to worry about all the stresses of life on the outside. You know, I don't have to worry about not going to work. I don't have to worry about this and this and this and that. None of those worries have any effect there because all of my basic needs are met. So I was really able to just focus on myself. And so of course I made it, I got accepted into RDAP, which the deal with the residential drug abuse program is if you complete the program, you get 12 months off your sentence and you're guaranteed six months at halfway house. So I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that I was going to get into that program. And I did. It's a really simple program. You know, it's not a lot of high verbiage. And at first that was hard for me, you know, because I thought I was, you know, I'm college educated. This is, this stuff is for kids, you know, but, uh, I did the program and it, it works. It's simple and it's anything but complex, but, um, it worked because it, what it does is it has you take a, like a deep look at like who you are and why you are the way you are. And it shows you the right way to be a human being and why you have a lot of the problems with society or with friends or with family or with relationships that you have. The program worked. Prison gave me time to figure out who I am and who I wanted to be. And if I would not have had that, I would have never taken the time to figure it out. And I would have walked through life with all the character defects that I have and never known about them and never given enough time to look at them to fix them. What was your thought when you first knew or found out that you were going to have to go to prison? I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do in prison? Like, how am I going to do this? I'm a prison's a scary place and I don't know what it's going to be like. And, you know, you see it on the movies. Like, am I going to get raped or am I going to have to fight somebody to the death? Like, you don't know. I mean, I guess it'd probably be different if like I'd had family members that had been or uh, people that I could talk to about it. But like, I didn't know anybody that had been to prison. So I was, I can remember my mom like getting online, like while I was on pre-trial release, like trying to find like the best places to go. And, <laughs> and it's like, I don't think it works that way. I don't think you get a pick, which you don't, <laughs> they just send you where you go. I really thought I was, I was really worried about it at first. And then after my encounter with Christ, I wasn't worried about it. I knew that's where I was supposed to go. Like all of a sudden, like there wasn't any more question about what my future held. Like I knew what God wanted me to do and I was going to do it. He's showing me the path. I just have to take the steps. So I just started walking and I knew that prison was part of that walk. And I'm so glad that it was. So prison was great, right? And um, it's not great. But I, I found out, I can remember my dad saying, the people you're around are, are who, who you're going to be like. The people you surround yourself with, who you're going to be like. Because he'd always, he'd always pick on me about my friends. Because mm. I always liked, you know, I liked friends that drank and I liked friends that did drugs because that's what I enjoyed doing. Well, while I was down, I started, not only did I stick like real heavily with being in the word and, and like I played all the sports stuff, you know, I did the football and the, I played basketball and, you know, they had pool tables where I was at once I got transferred from Leavenworth to Forest City. So I still played a little bit of pool. <laughs> I also hustled a little bit of pool. Yeah, that was actually the only trouble I ever got in was that. I found guys that were in there for financial crimes. I'm a card player. So I like playing cards. I like playing bridge and pinochle and and spades was you know spades is the game i started meeting these guys that that i thought were cool and that shared in the same kind of belief systems as i did but also were business minded you know and i started learning so there's a guy in there from memphis that that got caught up on on some big stuff and uh he was a he had an accounting firm but he was using that washing cash through his businesses, his trucking businesses and everything else. And he was also hauling drugs with those. He ended up taking me through the accounting classes and the finance classes that I failed out of at Wichita State. So I, I had this incredible opportunity to be in a population of people that all were really good at something. And the key was finding out what that thing was and then having them show me, you know, and if I've ever been really proud of one quality that I have in myself, it's that I am a learner. And I am teachable. 
So I found that the more I humbled myself, the more opportunities arose for me with with these people. Darren Atkinson was one of those guys. Arvin Lee Black was one of those guys. But like, these are people you wouldn't rub shoulders with on the street. Like, these are ballers. These are the big, big dogs. And uh, by humbling myself and by being teachable and by being coachable and by just being me, these guys are like, come on, kid, let me show you a few things. I was really fortunate to have met the people that I met and to, to have created the relationships that I created with the people that I was with. And like I said, like, it's tough and you're away from your family, but it teaches you to really appreciate the simple things in life. When before I was like, oh man, I need to get a nicer car or I want to get this, I want to get this really nice watch or whatever, live in this big fancy house and have all this security and everything else. Like when you realize you can be happy not having anything, you realize that the really important stuff, like the stuff you don't have, like I didn't get to hug my mom the whole time I was in Leavenworth. I just wanted to hug my mom and dad, you know, my nephews, like my nephews grew up with, like while I was in prison, they were little kids when I went in, they were in middle school and in high school when I came out, you know, and these were, these were my guys. That's what you miss. You miss the real simple things in life. You know, you miss being able to just take a shower whenever you want to and go grab McDonald's or what, you know, whatever. But it shows you that the important things in life are the relationships. The family is so important and it's not the stuff you have, it's the people you have and it's the relationships you create. So when I got out, like I knew, I didn't know what I was going to do. But I can remember thinking, man, if I could just make 15 bucks an hour, I'll be happy forever. I could live so happily forever if I could just find a job making that. Well, and the second thing is I had prayed. I had prayed the whole time I was down for God to put a good woman in my life. I was like, God, if you just put a good woman in my life, I can, I can do anything you want me to do. Just put a good woman in my life. And I talked a little bit about the string of bad relationships earlier. So um, I know it's important. I'm a physical specimen. Like I'm a monster. I decided I was going to train for an Ironman competition. And when I got out, I was going to go do a 70.3 mile triathlon. So I am, I'm a specimen. I know it's important and I know what I want and I know who I am. So my parents picked me up in Forest City, Arkansas, and I'm out on a writ and they drive me to 25th in California to mirror. When I get out of the car, I shake hands with the woman that's going to become my wife 18 months later. Of course, she had no interest in me at all. I was super interested in her. I can remember telling my dad when we got there, I was like, man, she is smart and funny. And that's the kind of girl that I want in my life. This girl wanted absolutely nothing to do with me. She could like care less. So I, uh, I just wanted to be, I, I just wanted to be genuine though. You know, I wanted to know what it was like to be in a relationship with somebody without seducing them. Because all my other relationships, that's why they'd been bad relationships. And like, I talk about character defects, like that was one of my big character defects. I would seduce people to get what I want, but then I could never make them happy and they could never make me happy. So the relationships would always end in flames, just horrible. Because sooner or later, the seduction ends because I'm not being myself and I'm holding you, I'm putting you on a pedestal. So as soon as you're not achieving what I want you to achieve, or as soon as you find out that I'm full of shit, it ends, right? So I wasn't going to do that. And I wasn't going to rush into any relationship, but like, I knew I was like, this is the girl. I get out of the halfway house and I get a good job. I start working at Target and I'm making great money. A position opens up at Ernest Spencer Metals. And I'm like, I want this job. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to go here. So I go there and I, I start out at the very bottom I can't remember what I made when I started there, but I started out there as a temp making $9 an hour. But like, I just, I'm a hard worker. Like if there's one thing my dad instilled in me, like you work hard, you always work hard, you always do your best. And whatever I'm doing, like I'm 120 miles an hour, whether that's when it was in the wrong direction, I was hard and fast in the wrong direction, but now it's in the right direction. So I'm hard and fast in the right direction. I've got a good job and uh, 
I end up finding this girl once I get done with everything with Mirror. And I'm like, hey, would you like to come and hang out sometime? You know, we're getting ready to have Thanksgiving and, and everything's going on. And she comes down and like, of course, she'd fallen in love with my family. She didn't care. She could care less about me, but she thinks my dad is cute. And she she loves my dog, Pumpkin. <laughs> so I uh, she comes down and she hangs out. That was it. I just, I knew it. You know, I knew that was it. I asked her if she wanted to hang out again. We went out on a date and that was it. So I've, I've got this job and I'm making okay money. I've got this incredibly intelligent, incredibly responsible, incredibly socially correct woman in my life that is honest to a fault, which is something that I never really experienced to that degree. Like right, wrong, whether it's going to hurt somebody or not, like this woman is honest to a T. I'd always been such a liar. I just lied. Whether it mattered or not, if it shortened one step for me, I would lie. And now I've got this person who is like just brutally honest with everything, but she's not a believer. I start doing really well at work and the harder I work and the longer I work, the faster I'm getting promoted. My main three goals when I got out were find the right job, rekindle the relationship with my family and continue my work for God. It wasn't three goals, Kristen, it was one. It was stay on the path because once again, back to that change, back to when that, that change occurred in my life. And when I had that spiritual moment, like ever since then, it wasn't, what should I do? It was, this is what I'm doing next. That makes things a lot simpler in life when you're not always thinking about what am I supposed to do next? Now, it wasn't always clear. I did know this. If I continued to make the next right decision, I couldn't go wrong. Things may go off track a little bit. I may swerve a little bit. You know, I'm not always dead down the center of the road, but as long as I'm on that path, I'm going to be okay. And sometimes it was as simple as, hey, just do the next right thing. And that's what it was. I knew that I wanted to have a good job and I knew that that was going to be paramount in my success because I'm vain and I'm greedy and I'm jealous and all these other things, right? I knew that I wanted to have a good job, but eventually like I, the goal was to get into in some form of helping people. And I didn't know what that was going to be yet, but I knew that was the end result. What were the biggest barriers that you had to overcome when reentering society? Yeah, probably the stigma that I placed on myself. I really thought that having to check the box and, you know, for, for having a felony and having to tell people that I work with that I'm a registered offender for drugs and, you know, just the stigma that kind of goes along with having to go to prison and being a felon. How did you work through it? I was not going to accept that that was going to hurt me in any way. To be completely honest with you, I, uh, with my job that I have, I was given a chance. I took advantage of that and I didn't waste it. So when I was given an opportunity, I made sure to make the best of it. When you finally released from the reentry center, how did life go and what were you doing? So I had already started my job that I'm currently still at now. Everything was going good. Like I'd what the discipline and the structure that I had built for myself in prison, like I brought that back with me. I didn't spend all that time learning all that stuff and disciplining myself to do that, to get out and throw it all away. So I use that hard work and that dedication and that, that heart, you know, that work ethic along with, you know, a little bit of charm and some charisma to help myself at work. I got in with this company, the one I told you about, Ernest Spencer Metals, and I just started and I can remember it was right around Thanksgiving and the owner of the company had this huge lunch all its employees. And I was like, who does this? You know, what, what kind of company does this for its employees? Cause like they were handing out 
turkeys to everybody and that is huge spread and we all got to stay on the clock for it. And I'm like, this is incredible. And the owner of the company stands up in front of all the employees and he says, guys, listen, I know I've been pushing everybody hard. I know you've been working a lot of overtime, but I want you to remember this as we approach the holidays. You got to know what's important in life. And he said, God, family, and then work. That's the owner of my company, God, family, and work. And I was still a temp at the time. So like, (laughs) you know, I wasn't even hired onto the actual place yet. I can remember thinking like, I'm going to work for this guy forever. I'm absolutely going to work for this guy forever. That's exactly what I needed. Like I'd been questioning whether I'd made a good decision leaving Target because this was a lower paying job, but uh, I could see a future there. And after hearing that, I was like, okay, wow, that was a perfect stone on the path in front of me. So uh, I dug in and I learned how to do everything there. And I had really good bosses that were really willing to show me how to do it because I wanted to learn and I was teachable and I was humble. I didn't talk about how much I knew. I talked about how much I didn't know and how much I wanted to learn. And when you present yourself that way to people, they're a lot more open to, to teaching you and to showing you things and to helping you grow. I used to approach people like, hey, I already know how to do all this stuff. Give me what I want and pay me what I want. And instead of doing that, by asking them the questions of stuff that I didn't know and by, by humbling myself and, and being teachable, that reversed that effect. Instead of them saying like, oh man, we got this kid who thinks he knows everything. It's, oh man, well, you know what? You know, I want someone to learn all this stuff. This guy wants to learn. I might as well show somebody. So within six months of being at the company, I was promoted from the floor to the office, which a lot of that had to do with me having a college degree. So I, sorry, I ended up graduating with a, my bachelor's degree from Emporia State. A position opened up and, and my current boss at the time, one of the fabrication managers was like, hey, you should apply for this job. It's really good. You know, I think you can get it. And I applied and, and I got it. I had spoken to the owner on a couple occasions and like I told him a little bit about my backstory and uh, he his father had unfortunately died from alcoholism. So like he understood where I was coming from with addiction and with what I was doing and, and everything else. Cause like when you really break down, like what happened and how everything happened to me with the addiction and with the drugs and even with selling them was like, I got tired of paying. I got tired of paying so much for drugs and it was cheaper to, to have them. If I sold them, I didn't have to pay for them. Like I could, I could basically use them for free. Addicts and alcoholics understand each other. It's like he, he had lived through alcoholism like in his family, so he, he understands. We had had conversations, and I'd, I'd been promoted to coordinator, and then I was promoted shortly after that to project manager, and within another year, I was promoted to the manager of my department, the project management department. I was given an opportunity to start like giving back. I can remember asking him. We were at uh, TCC, Topeka Country Club, for a one of our work events, and there was a group of young men in a room, and he knew a bunch of them, and I was like, who are all those guys? And he's like, well, that's that's the 2030 club. And I'm like, well, what's the 2030 club? And I had, I'd already started fighting. I donate the money I make for my fights. And, you know, I'd always picked a charitable cause and whatever I did, like I'd always donate money to him for the fights. So, uh, he already knew my heart is like, I had a giving heart. It turns out that he used to be a member of this club. And, um, I asked him if I told him that I was interested in it and he kind of pushed me to sponsor me to help me out with it, to become a member. I did very well. I worked hard. I made my way up through the company with the help of my coworkers who I love and adore. It gave me an opportunity to become part of organizations where I was able to give back and to get involved with my community and with a lot of nonprofits in my community. And that has just absolutely blossomed. And so I know that you're a professional fighter and you did just kind of mention it. Would you explain what actually got you started in that? So I trained for the Ironman competition while I was down. And I'd gotten myself in a really good shape and I planned on doing this race. Well, I ended up getting married 
the same weekend that I was going to go run this triathlon and I burned a $600 ticket because I couldn't go do it. Well, I mean, I probably could have, but my wife would have killed me. I, uh, one of my friends knew that I'd, I'd missed that. And, you know, I posted something on it about Facebook about how I was going to miss it. And he invited me to come up to his gym and train. And, uh, I went up there and put in a mouthpiece and put on boxing gloves and shin guards and threw down and had an absolute blast and just fell in love with it. And, uh, <laughs> then I spent the next year and a half figuring out how I was going to make a ministry out of it because unless God's involved in what I'm doing, I know I'm not going to succeed at it. So, uh, I started figuring out how I could turn it into a ministry. And I found that, especially in the fight world, you look at guys like, uh, Connor McGregor and the Paul brothers and just, you know, all the guys that are really flamboyant and trash talkers and all that other junk. And I'm just like, man, whatever happened to the good old days of good sportsmanship and integrity and honesty and, and just love of the sport and love of the competition. And I decided like, that was when God gave me discernment and was like, listen, this is what I want you to do. If you're going to do this, this is how I want you to do it. And this is what I want you to do. I started making kind of my own path. You know, I, um, I'm currently the Kansas heavyweight professional boxing champion and, uh, Hopefully December 3rd, if I get it and if everything goes down right, I'll be the WBC World Boxing USA heavyweight champion. So you're kind of a big deal? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> what is your nickname? I am the Iron Man. And that has, that's kind of a, a double entendre because I, uh, number one, I work for a steel manufacturer. And number two, I was training for an Iron Man. So everybody started teasing me in the gym, calling me, okay, come on, Iron Man. You can run for 25 miles, but you can't take a punch, you know? So I, I got a lot of slack about that at first, but, uh, yeah, I am, I'm currently undefeated five and O as a professional. Congratulations. Five wins by knockout. Yeah. And I, uh, I've had the opportunity to pray with every one of my opponents before we fight every single per, every one of my opponents I'm dear friends with now, you know, I, it doesn't have to be something bad. Like I do it because I love the sport. And while it, it happens to be violent. Like it gives me a path to direct my energy because we talked about like that shotgun at first, right? We talked about how ADHD affected me and how it affected me growing up and how it affects me now. I own Topeka Auto Glass with two partners. I own Midwest Combat Coalition, a promotion company with three other partners. I'm in seminary in teaching the Urban Ministry Institute, Topeka. I'm a seminary student. I'm currently finishing my second year. I'm one of the jail pastors for Shawnee County, which as a registered offender, there's not a chance like without God that they would even let me in that place. I'm a pro fighter and I train 20 plus hours a week. I have a kid. <laughs> I mean, I, I've got five jobs. I'm a great life boxing professional trainer. You know, I teach classes Tuesdays and Thursdays at Great Life. I keep myself busy. I know what happens when I, when I have free time on my hands, when I have unstructured time on my hands and like, that's when the, the alcohol or the whatever, you know, it could be whatever. I've learned that the drugs and the alcohol for me, like are sin. Now I don't agree with that to everybody. You know, I think, I think there are people that can drink responsibly. You know, I think there are people that can smoke pot responsibly or do what, you know, whatever, you know, there are people that don't take it to the extremes that I took it to, but, um, to me it's death. The only time I think about death is when I'm not doing God's work. So I. I'm always, always in everything I do and everything I am a part of and everything I belong to and the people I surround myself with, I make it about God. And as long as I make it about him and not me, I know I'm okay. But the minute that I start thinking, oh, come on, John, you're the, come on, Iron Man, you're the heavyweight champion, you know, you're this or that, or nobody's going to be able to beat you or, you know, whatever, whatever, call it what you want. Like the minute that that happens, God's going to put a stop to it. And I 100% know that. 
But as long as I keep it about him and praising him and glorifying him in everything I do with everybody that I'm around, and as long as he keeps putting me back into the same stew that I walked out of to pull more people out, you know, especially in the county, especially in the county, if I could quit all my other jobs and just do one thing, including boxing, I would just be the jail pastor because I find more reward from that than anything else I do because those guys know that I've been through what they're going through. They know that I've walked in those steps. They know that I've walked that road. They know who I am and they can see it on me. You know, and since I'm married to this brutally honest woman who has made me, (laughs) I don't know how, an honest man, you know, they can see that. And I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of my felonies. I'm not ashamed of my past. I'm not ashamed of what happened or what I went through or the, you know, I'm not anymore because it's made me who I am. And that's what matters because I wouldn't be who I was without all this stuff happening without the drugs and the addiction and the heartbreak and the loss and all the, without all of that, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't trade who I am today for anything. I love who I am now. I love my life now. Now, I'm not saying that everything is perfect and rosy. I'm not saying that I don't get into arguments with my friends or get into arguments with my wife or get into, you know, have bad days at work and and get frustrated. You know, I'm not saying that there's not days that I'd rather not go to the gym and that I'd not, I'd rather not have to answer 10 million emails for everything else that I'm doing. You know, there's not days that I wish, man, I'd rather, uh, do I have to go? Do I have to teach at the jail today? Do I, oh, do I, do I really need to go to church today? Can we not just have one day off? You know, there's, I have those days, but I do it. I do it because it's what God wants me to do. And it's because it's what's given me the happiness in life that I have now. And I wouldn't change that for any amount of money or any amount of fame or anything else in the world, because that's what's important. And as long as I've got that foundation and that cornerstone on Christ, I know that I have everything that I'll ever need. You say you're a father to a superhero. Would you share a story about your son? I'm going to try to make this as brief as possible, but it's not a brief story. And it's, uh, you know what? I'm you're, sorry. you're just going to have to live with me, okay? We're just going to go into it. So um, I've been out for about three years. And I can remember talking to her. And I told you my wife wasn't a believer. So that came to a head. Cause I can remember telling her like, I wanted kids. I, I wanted to start my life. Cause I, f- I thought, man, I spent my, my mid twenties in prison. You know, when I got out, I wanted to have kids, you know, cause I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to have kids or not. And you know, with all the drugs and everything else, I didn't know if I was like physically going to be able to have kids. So, um, I wanted kids and like my wife is, she's an academic, you know, and she's smart and she's got big dreams. You know, she wants to change the world through sentence reformation and she wants to shine the light on, on how drug crimes, you shouldn't punish mental health problems with penal addictions and you shouldn't put people in prison for mental health issues. My, my wife has got this massive heart and she wants to help these people. And, uh, but she didn't understand my addiction and she didn't understand the strength of my addiction. So, um, I told her if if we weren't going to have kids, I wanted to have fun. So we started drinking, started drinking again. And I can remember Orrin Woodfin telling me when I was in Leavenworth, he said, John, listen, you can have anything you want in life and you can do anything you want in life and you can achieve anything you want in life. Just don't drink. And there's very few phrases or sayings or anything else that I've ever experienced in my life to be more true to me than that. So I started drinking again and within six months I had relapsed, completely relapsed, kicked her out of my house, took everything she owned and put it in the driveway where was this at in your story? I had just been promoted to project manager. So you're already out of the reentry center? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. wait, 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 wait. This is this is two years after that. We'd gotten married and you know started our started our lives together and bought a house and we just we just bought a new house, a new big house out in out in a fancy area. And uh, she had no idea 
I can remember telling her when we decided that we were going to start a relationship together. Like if I ever drink or use drugs, like you need to leave me and get away from me as fast as you possibly can, because I am a monster and I will ruin both of us. I will ruin both of our lives like unstoppably if I ever do this again. And, uh, she just didn't know until you've lived with somebody that has addiction and or alcohol problems. You have no idea. So I'd relapsed. It was bad. We split up and then I'm just going to fast forward through a lot of the story about six months down the road from there. She calls me and she's like, Hey, listen, I know that we're not okay. I know that you're not happy. I know that you're not okay with, you know, with what's going on with what you're doing. And I know that you're in active addiction. Would you go to church with me? And I, you know, it, it took me aback. I was like, you know, what do you mean go to church with you? Like you don't believe in God. You know, and that was, that was like the big thing. That was the thing in our relationship that had me taken aback. Cause I'm like, God, you know, I prayed for this woman the whole time I was down. You put her in my life and then I think I've lost her. You know, I've, I've lost this gal. We ended up getting together. Right. And then he, he made that, that dream come true. You know, after I'd waited and I thought, well, you know, she's never going to want to date me. Cause I've, 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 I've been to the halfway house and I've been to prison and all this other stuff. And then you we somehow reconnect after all this and then it works. And then we start a relationship together and we get married and everything else. And she's not a believer. Now I've, I've kicked her out of my life. And now she's asking because she didn't have this foundation, right. That I wanted our lives to be built on. And I, I 100% blamed her for my relapse. 100%. When we start drinking and we start doing, doing that again, it's almost immediately back to where we left off. Like all that progress that I had made washed away. So instead of looking at myself and saying, no, you made a choice. Nobody forced you to take a drink except for you. This was all you. I blamed her for that. And I said, oh, well, if she loved me, she would have never let me take a drink. Blah, blah, blah. But we, we tell ourselves these lies and we believe it. So she asked me to go to church. I was going to be done fighting. I ended up taking another fight because I know that like when I'm active, like that helps snap my mind back. So, uh. I took a fight and we started, we started going to church together and we ended up getting baptized together. And that was one, that was a wild experience. Crazy, crazy, crazy. We take a couple out and uh, we're praying for my friend's wife to pass her nursing exam so she can go on to the next step. It worked while we were, we took them out to eat. We prayed for it the next, the next week. She's like, Oh my goodness, I passed. So they take us out to dinner and we're like, Hey, can you guys pray for us to be able to, to conceive? Cause we're trying to, we want to have a baby. It was like, she was already pregnant when we had that conversation, but, uh, like we found out like two days later that she was pregnant and it's like, Oh, praise God. You know, the, just the absolute coolest. Like God's always there. He's always doing it. You know, he knows our desires. He knows what we, he knows what we want, but more than that, he knows what we need, you know, and he gives us those gifts. Taylor had a perfect pregnancy. You know, everything was going great at work. I'd gotten another promotion and like my life was back on track, but it was slowly becoming more about business and making money than it was about God. And, uh, we got to the hospital or we had, she had a perfect pregnancy. She went 40 days plus three. And like, I can remember thinking, man, like I want to take this kid early. Like, let's see if we can do it on Friday. Well, our doctor couldn't do it until Monday, the following Monday. So we were going in on Sunday night and we had a scheduled induction for Monday morning. So we get to the hospital on Sunday and like, I got my backpack with my work laptop and like I'm planning on knocking out some quotes and being on my, you know, answering emails and doing all this stuff so I can, I don't miss anything while I'm at the hospital because work's so important. And uh, <laughs> we get there and we get upstairs and I'm hee-hawing and horsing around with the nurses and joking around and everything else. And they get Taylor strapped up to everything and I can tell something's wrong because they are, once they start looking at the monitors, they are not liking what they're seeing. So, uh, she was having D cells every time she'd have a contraction, our baby's heart would, would slow down. It was putting pressure on him and we couldn't figure out what was going on. So we ended up having an emergency C-section and Cooper was a stillborn. 
sorry, he was yet to be named, but he was, we had a, a baby and he was a stillborn. The doctors came and grabbed me like while I was sitting next to Taylor and she was having a panic attack because she was so worried about the baby. So the doctors came and grabbed me and they're like, you need to come with us now. So I came, I walked around the big, the big curtain where they have everything with her on one side and the anesthesiologist and the doctors that are taking care of her. And I went around and when they had pulled my son out, like they held up this huge, beautiful baby, but he was, he was all brown. Like his skin was really dark. And I, I like, I could tell something wasn't right. Well, so he had lost oxygen in the womb sometime between Wednesday and Sunday, the placenta had gone, the oxygen in the placenta had gone bad and he'd lost oxygen. So he'd been in there basically suffocating for, I don't know how long I, I come around the corner and, uh, one of the doctors has got his head in one hand and his chest in the other, and he's shaking him. I'm thinking I'm going to tear this guy's arms off and I'm going to go back to prison for this guy shaking my son. And, uh, the nurse is like, they're trying to revive him right now. He's, he's not responding. He doesn't have a pulse and he's not breathing. And my heart is falling out of my chest because I've been reading Harry Potter to this thing and the Lord of the Rings and singing to it for the last nine months. And my whole heart and soul is dying in front of my eyes is dead is dead was born dead. So, uh, I just fall on my hands and knees right there. And I'm just praying with all my might, like, God, please save my son. Please don't take my son away from me. I've been waiting on this my whole life. The only thing I've ever wanted to be is a dad. Please don't take this away from me. And uh, I prayed to Christ and Christ rose my son from the dead in front of my eyes. I watched it physically happen. I watched something that's medically impossible happen in front of me. So they, they get him to where he's got a heartbeat, and he's, but he's in bad shape, really bad shape. And they rush him into the NICU, and they've got him in this little tiny room, and there's machines and everything everywhere. And there's 11 people in, this, in a room that's 10 by 10, smaller than my jail, smaller than my prison cell. And uh, they're just working, and I'm out there, and I'm just falling apart. And I can remember thinking, I could leave right now, and I could walk, and I could take a drink, and I could make all this go away. And... The nurse asked me what his name was. She's like, what's his name? And just, and, and it's hard for me to tell you this, but I remember that brutal honesty thing, right? I can remember for a split second, Kristen, I didn't want to name him. I didn't want to. Cause if I named him, that mean that would make it real. And, uh, me and my wife had argued the whole time. I was, I was bound to determine if we had a son, his name was going to be John, John Jr. Because I was named after my great grandpa, John and so on and so forth. So this nurse and I'm talking to her and we're both just praying and we're sobbing together. And this poor nurse has just started her job and she drew my card and my story for her, one of her first experiences in the NICU. And we're both just like dying together. Like our souls are just being crushed together. And uh, she's like, so what's his name? And I said, John. And the, the charge nurse is like, no, not your name. What's your son's name? And I'm like, Cooper. And she's like, okay. So I told my wife that we weren't going to name him, that when I got to hold him for the first time, like God was going to give me a name and I was going to name him. Well, that's, that's my BS of saying, I'm going to name him John when you can't do anything about it. So, <laughs> so I, I never got that experience. I didn't get to hold him. You know, I didn't know. I, I didn't know what his name was going to be. And Cooper's what came. So his name's Cooper. So everything finally gets to calm down and they're like, okay, he's stable. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to go upstairs and tell my wife that we're probably not going to get to take our son home ever. And that all the clothes and the car seat and everything that we have is we're never going to get to have a baby for those things. 
I go into the waiting room, the parents' waiting room down in the NICU at Stormont Vale, and I'm just sobbing and I'm falling apart and my whole world is just crushed. And uh, I start looking around and on the walls, they have these little little notes that are clipped up there. And I started reading them and they're like notes from parents to their kids that are in the NICU. Like I started seeing the dates on them and it was like, oh my, you know, we're praying with everything we have. Please God help our kid. And then you look at the dates from like a week or two later and it's like, oh my gosh, you're doing so good. You know, you ate for the first time or you did this for the first time or you, whatever. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take my kid home. Like, I'm going to take this kid home. I don't care what happens and I don't care anything about, I don't care about his, cause they were basically telling us he was, if he did survive, he was going to have severe cerebral palsy, massive brain damage. Like he was, he was going to be a vegetable. Like he'd never walk. He'd never talk. He'd never be able to eat by himself without a GI tube. Um, he was going to be completely blind, completely deaf. And I was like, you know what? I don't care about any of that. Like I'm taking my kid home and I don't care what he can or can't do. I'm going to be the best gosh dang dad that anybody's ever been to this kid, no matter what. And, uh, that was just like the moment that I was like, you know what? It's going to, everything's going to be okay. And I, I just witnessed a, a real life biblical miracle in front of my eyes. And like, I've since becoming a Christian, like I've seen some miracles, but this is next level. So, um, I go upstairs and I'm telling my wife, you know, I'm not lying, but I'm like, you know, they're working on him and like, she's still all doped up, you know, from all the NSC, you know, everything else. And, and they had to give her meds to calm her down. Cause her heart was racing off the charts. I'm like, you know, he's fighting and he's, they're working on him. I lay down with her and we just sobbed together. This was probably midnight when I made it up to the room. It was about three or four o'clock in the morning when they called me and they told me I needed to come down. And uh, we both went down there. Like that was the first time Taylor was going to get to see him. We took her down in a wheelchair and uh, they told us we needed to get down there now. So we went downstairs and uh, he'd started having seizures and um, it was bad. He'd had an hour long seizure and Basically, it was destroying his brain and like his organs were already hurt. He had a hole in his lung. Like, I mean, he was in bad shape, like really bad shape. His lactic acid buildup was so bad. Like, you know, like when you overwork a muscle, like you get lactic acid buildup and it hurts, hurts, hurts. His whole body was so built up with lactic acid. Like you couldn't imagine the pain that this kid was in. So he was on morphine at a day old. They basically were like, you know. We don't know what's happening, but we need to fix it. We need to do something. So uh, one of the doctors made the recommendation to put him on hypothermia treatment, which is where they lower the body temperature to try to slow all the processes down. And they'll put medicine in and they slow all the processes down and give that time to work without destroying all the organs. They're called head cooling babies. This is not a good thing. If your kid has to be head cooled, it's not good. So they, they put him on the hypothermia treatment and it's a 72 hour process where Everything just slows down and they pump them full of medicine and then they need certain things to happen. Well, this is right in the heart of COVID and I've never been a parent. My wife's never been a parent. We don't have any relatives at the hospital. We don't have anybody there that can tell us what to do or how to do this and talk about learning how to be a parent through trial by fire. So uh, we're like, okay, let's, you know, we're going to do this and they do the treatment and, you know, we, we didn't know who to reach out to or who to talk to about this. So like I did I reached out on Facebook. I didn't know how else to get in touch with everybody and I needed prayers. So I started posting. The doctors would tell us what Cooper needed to do and then I would post that on Facebook and then it went viral and it went international. We had churches in Germany and France and Italy praying for my son and uh, Kristen. We would tell them what we needed. The doctors would tell us what they needed. We would put those on Facebook and within hours, the prayers would be answered. Like I'm talking about physical 
biblical miracles, like with medical proof that they happened, things that can't have happened happening through the power of prayer. So he lost a massive portion of his brain from the seizures and, uh, you know, he was in really bad shape. And the first, I mean, we were in the NICU for three or four weeks and then we, we finally got to take him, you know, we, we got to be the ones putting the notes on the card about how he was progressing. And I can remember the first time he opened his eyes and it was just like, Oh my goodness. It's there's, there's something there, you know? And like, I could tell by the way he looked at me that there was a mind behind it. Like it wasn't just like looking around, like he was looking at me and, ah. Uh, we got to take him home and uh, then we were home for a week and then we had to go to another one in a hundred billion thing with calcium and, and he had to do infusions and shots and just miserable, miserable, miserable stuff at Children's Mercy. And we brought him back and it's been doom and gloom the whole time with everything that everything that medicine shows and that doctors show and that case studies show has been nothing but bad news. And this kid is just not having anything to do with it. Like I said, they told us he would never walk. He'd never talk. He'd never be able to eat by himself. Like this kid is a walking, talking machine. He loves everybody. He's the reason that my dad is now saved. He's the reason that one of my best friends is now saved because like they saw the power of Christ in his life and now they're saved because of what Christ did for him. I mean, he's changed everything, man. Like this kid is a walking, talking superhero and there's absolutely nothing I don't think that this kid can't achieve in life. Now with the, especially with the fighting and everything else, the club that I'm a, that I'm a member of that helps local children's charities and puts a lot of money into them. Like I got to experience firsthand, like why families need that kind of help, you know, because they reached out and helped us. And then Tark has been a huge part of our lives. Like they've been with us through every step of the way. They've taught us how to teach kids with, teach a kid with special needs, like how to grow and how to learn. And my background as a teacher and Taylor's background as an academic and, and her patience, you know, she's the most patient person in the world and I'm the most disciplined and hardcore and, you know, boot camp drill instructor. God put the perfect mix of things together for us to raise this kid. And this kid is going to change the world. He is. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. Wow. Although your story is absolutely amazing, we do unfortunately have to wrap up for the sake of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> what message do you have for those who believe in the negative stigma associated with individuals who've been in jail or prison? Your perceptions become your realities. You're going to portray what you think of yourself. You're going to look like who you think you look like. If you think that prison and the stigma of felony of having a felony is going to affect you than it is. If you decide that you're not going to let anything deter you from God's goal of you and your life, then there is absolutely nothing that can. 110% agree. What piece of advice do you have for those who are still in prison or jail, but are looking forward to getting out? Guys, take your time. Don't feel like you need to rush anything. If you're there, it's because God has you there for a reason. You are there because he told you to be still and you refuse to be still. He is trying to get you to learn something that you have not learned yet. And he's teaching you. He's giving you this time to learn this. So don't look at it as a curse that you're there. Look at it as an opportunity for you to do something that you would have never taken the time to do if you were out here. And that's to look at who you want to be and what kind of person you want to be and what you want to do with your life. If you could tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I wouldn't change anything because it's all made me who I am. I feel bad about bad things I've done and I feel bad about people I've I've hurt or, or relationships that I've broken or I'm sorry that I did that, but I wouldn't take anything I wouldn't undo anything that's been done because that's God had that in, as part of my plan to be able to use me for what he's using me for now. 
and I'm going through the trials that I'm going through now so that I can serve that purpose and that plan further down the road. I don't, you've heard my story. You know why I don't ask why I will never ask God why again, because I know that if I wait, he's going to show me why. What does hope mean to you? Amazing grace. It's our only hope. What a sorry, sad bunch of people we would be if it wasn't true. But thank God for showing me that it's true. What three words best describe you? I'm a son of the father. I am a fighter for those that can't fight for themselves and for those that fight for others and for those that need help and for those that are in bad places and for those that need a people that need a way out or that need to see something else or that need something. I fight for them. Student, always learning, always teachable, always coachable, lifelong learner, never want to stop. Son to the almighty God who just wants to make my dad proud, student of the ages. What do you see for your future? I have no idea. I've got so many irons and so many fires, and uh, I have no idea what God has in plan, what his plan, what he has in mind, what his plan for me is, but uh, it doesn't matter. I just got to keep doing the next right thing. What is one message of inspiration you have for others? Guys and gals, it doesn't matter what you did or how you did it or anything else. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter. Only thing that matters is the gift. The gift is free. All you have to do is accept it. The only thing in this world or the next that matters is the relationship that you have with your creator. That can be done through Christ Jesus alone. And once you have that, and once you have that relationship, you have everything in this life and the next that you will ever need. It is that simple. This has been probably one of the most difficult uh, conversations for me to follow up with words with, because thank you very much. You... Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your testimony. Thank you for being a steward and helping the community, helping those around you and doing what you do. I appreciate you taking the time to be a guest on the Reentry Reframe podcast. And I really look forward to whatever the thing is that will be coming next for your future. Likewise. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to help and to talk and to, uh, to maybe help anybody that's going through some of the stuff that I went through. Is it possible for anybody to be able to reach out to you if they do find your story empowering? Absolutely. How do they do that? You can find me on Facebook. You can find me at Topeka Auto Glass. You can find me at Ernest Spencer Metals. You can find me at Great Life Boxing. You get a hold of Kristen or Melissa or Dave or anybody, and I'm sure they have my number somewhere. You can reach out to the Reentry Reframed Facebook page as well, and we will definitely get you connected that way. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate everybody who takes their time out of their day to listen to the episodes. There's really no words for the gratitude that there is for people who are supporting us and what we are doing in the mission that this lovely opportunity has. If you found this episode or any of the other episodes impactful, please let us know. Please send us a message or send us an email. My email is k-s-h-o-o-k at mirrorinc.org. That is m-i-r-r-o-r-i-n-c dot o-r-g. This is Kristen Shook signing off of Reentry Reframed, a Mirror Inc. sponsored podcast. Thank you. (laughs) 